Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're talking with the authors of a recent report titled Unlikely Allies in Preventing Sexual Misconduct. Subtitle is Student-Led Prevention Efforts in a Technical Communication Classroom. This paper discusses the effectiveness of current methods of addressing and preventing sexual misconduct on university campuses and proposes some new ideas to help educate students how to respond to these issues. And uh, so we're joined by those authors today. We bring in Avery Edenfield, a USU Assistant Professor of uh, English. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hi. Good to have you on. Uh, Felicia Gallegos is Outreach and Prevention Coordinator for the USU Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Office, or SAVI. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Happy to be here. Good morning. And uh, Emily Fishburn is USU Senior Prevention Specialist. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. Uh, so I should mention that uh, a fourth author, uh, not with us, uh, Haley Judd with the uh, Utah Department of Health. Um, so uh, let me just uh, have each of you tell me in brief what you do uh, on campus. Uh, so I'll start with Avery Edenfield. Uh, hi, I'm uh, I come, uh, Good morning, everyone. I am an English professor uh, in technical communication and rhetoric. And uh, so uh, I teach uh, several classes, and one of my uh, I, one of the classes that I teach is project management within the English department, and that is the where the context of this this, this collaboration takes place with, is within that class. Um, my area of research is also um, looking at how uh, marginalized people uh, use technical documents to advocate for their own needs, particularly in, in the face of institutional failures, and that led me to researching how folks um, how folks talk about consent. Um, outside of institutions, um, which kind of is the, the, the germ of this, um, the beginning of this collaboration. All right. Um, and uh, Felicia Gallegos, you're uh, with SAVI. What, what do you do? Yeah, so I'm the Outreach and Prevention Coordinator for the SAVI office. The SAVI office itself provides advocacy and therapy to survivors of interpersonal violence within the Utah State University community. But my focus is ultimately educating and preventing violence in within Utah State. So planning events, uh, trainings, marketing campaigns, um, influencing policies and procedures to be trauma-informed, and just making sure that we are hopefully preventing violence before it happens, um, and then helping those who experience violence when, if it does. And Emily Fishburn, a USU Senior Prevention Specialist, what, uh, what do you do? So as the Senior Prevention Specialist, I work in Utah State's Office of Equity, which is the university's oversight and compliance office for non-discrimination laws and policies. Essentially what that means is our office is the office that is tasked with responding to issues of discrimination and sexual misconduct at Utah State. I am specifically the supervisor of the training and education team in our office, and so we are the team that provides all of the annual mandatory trainings for students and employees related to sexual misconduct topics, and then we provide a wide variety of other trainings related to discrimination and sexual misconduct. And similar to Felicia, spent a lot of time trying to influence policies and procedures, work with Felicia on campaigns and, and those kinds of things. So she and I work really closely together to make sure the university is preventing sexual misconduct effectively and appropriately. So before we jump into this particular project, maybe I turn to Felicia to uh, give definitions, as you do in the paper. Uh, sexual misconduct is an umbrella term for, for what? Yeah, so sexual misconduct is an umbrella term for 
um, sexual assault, sexual harassment, relationship violence, which includes both dating and domestic violence, and then stalking behaviors is what we're looking at when we say sexual misconduct. Emily Fishburne, I assume we have these problems on USU campus. Yeah, we do. Um, Just like any other college or university campus throughout the world, quite frankly, sexual misconduct is something that does happen within the university community, both among students and employees. Um, Utah State conducts what we call biannual campus climate surveys related to sexual misconduct issues. And so this is an opportunity for the Office of Equity in conjunction with campus partners to really assess what's going on in our university climate across the state related to sexual misconduct issues. So our most recent surveys went out to students and employees in April of 2021, um, and those public data reports were just released in January of this year. So the next time we'll run them is in spring of 2023. And again, it's really just a chance for us to check in to see what's happening amongst our students and our employees um, and what we can be doing to continue to work to educate to prevent these kinds of behaviors from taking place. Well, how is USU doing and, you know, in, in comparison to our peers, uh, and are we making progress? That's a good question. So, I mean, in terms of how we're doing, it's a little bit of an elusive question to answer. So, you know, when thinking about collecting data every couple of years, um, we certainly are seeing progress in terms of student and employee knowledge gain and information about resources, such as Savvy, for instance. Where can we go when we have these kinds of experiences? We're also seeing gains in terms of people being willing to intervene, so to be upstanders when they see situations like sexual misconduct behaviors taking place. So those kinds of things are encouraging to us. Uh, In terms of the data of percentages of who is having these kinds of experiences, they're staying relatively flat since we started doing the survey in spring of 2017. Um, What I think is important to recognize, though, contextually with that is that part of the process of doing surveying is also recognizing that the student body and the employee base turns over um, on a regular basis. And so what is encouraging to folks that do the work, such as me and Felicia, is really seeing some of those knowledge and attitude shifts and changes, um, and also recognizing that the process of preventing sexual misconduct isn't just Utah State's uh, responsibility alone, right? When we think about society and culture, it's important to recognize that there have been a lot of cultural shifts in terms of thinking about sexual misconduct issues, and so people are actually more willing to come forward and say they've had these experiences, Uh, and so we do see that reflected in our data as well. Avery Edenfield, uh, before we jump into this uh, this collaboration, interesting uh, collaboration results here, uh, you study uh, marginalized communities, right, and and how these issues affect them. Uh, Overall, I don't know, can we tell, are we making progress in those communities? Um, Well, I, I guess that's kind of hard to know as well. Uh, I my area really looks at like uh, what I was looking at was zines and the stuff that people were producing and talking about how people were producing and talking about sexual consent um, and within specifically within queer communities. And uh, I think queer communities have have been have been way ahead in terms of maybe the majority population about how they talk about consent. Uh, for, for reasons that we discussed in the article, um, they've, they've been, you know, uh, grounding uh, consent and uh, conversations about consent, um, not in police response or in institutional responses, but in uh, individual responses and community responses. Um, and so that's, that's been a major shift, and, and that's a major shift in the way that um, for queer communities that they, they typically responded uh, to sexual misconduct and, um, and teaching consent. 
so that's that's really where my area is, and that's really hard to to, to quantify um, and to to see how they're how they're doing. Um, so unfortunately, I don't have a great answer for that. But uh, I would say, as I said, that they that conventionally queer communities have been have been much further ahead in the sense that they have relied on notions of affirmative consent, um, which is I, just, instead of an advocacy model, uh, whereas yes means yes versus no means no. Um, and that that has been uh, conventionally more effective uh, within, within queer communities. Okay, uh, Avery Edenfield, let, let, let's jump in. You uh, understand the, the, the germ of this idea came from you, right? This, and, and the idea is... Uh, uh, students in in you know formerly in classrooms collaborating with uh, prevention specialists. So, so tell me how this began. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, thanks. Um, yeah, I started with in 2019. I, I uh, wrote an article called "Queering Consent," where I did just that. I analyzed uh, materials, uh, institutional materials versus queer zines, and how they talked about consent. And through that, I came up with some. Um, some, uh, some takeaways, some applications that I, I thought could be relevant. Um, so I, I, I sent them the, the paper to Emily and Felicia, and then uh, they wanted a meeting. And so we had a meeting. Um, and in that meeting, we learned, I learned more about, uh, you know, their limited capacity, and they were excited about the ideas, but they felt like they, you know, they, they had, so, you know, so much to do and, and the limited capacity to, to, with it, with when to, to do it. So that's when I said, hey, I, I have this project management class that needs a total redesign. Um, it, needed, it needed to, to be restructured. And uh, that's kind of where it came from. And so we, as we've been, we're on our third year now um, where they are clients to the class projects. Um, and so students are actually creating the materials Using it's a technical communication class. They use the skills they've learned in previous classes to create materials that um, Felicia and Emily can then use. Uh, and what's cool is that it's used. You know, part of the process is designing projects that can be completed in that time, and uh, that students can immediately use in their professional portfolios as well. Uh, so it, it's been mutually beneficial in that sense too. That that students have these artifacts that they're creating that are professional and being used. And then Emily and Felicia get these uh, products that they can use as well um, to expand their capacity. Um, and, and honestly, for me, it's very fulfilling as well because I, I get to feel like I'm making some kind of difference immediately, you know, within, within campus community. Uh, let me back up uh, briefly here. Uh, a zine. What's a zine? A zine is a, it's a DIY uh, grassroots, uh, uh, non-copyrighted, free to distribute. Typically, free to copy and, and paste, or copy and, and distribute, like little self-publication. Um, so it's it's like a little magazine, um, but they typically called zines, and they're distributed. Uh, there's there's no publishing house. It's just created, you know, and. On your sometimes it's copying, literally cop, cutting out and pasting things together into pages. Uh, sometimes it's more high tech where you're doing it on a computer, but it's just creating co- like a collage material uh, to distribute your own information outside of official kind of channels. Mm-hmm. And you've studied these yeah. uh, in in certain communities, I understand. 
yes, I have. Yeah, I've I've published on them before. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm interested. It would take parenthetically, just take a little uh, minute here. Um, I guess this could be helpful with you know smaller communities, maybe marginalized communities. You, you don't have to go through formal infrastructure of publishing. Yes, absolutely. That you, you hit on it there, and and so. Um, you know, marginalized communities have used zines to communicate all kinds of important important information, um, from how to do stuff to uh, reports of dangerous people to teaching each other important things like consent. Um, and and so yeah, zines have been have have had uh, a, have been I consider technical communication, which is writing the good stuff done in the world. Uh, been doing that for you know for quite some time for decades now um so and um yeah there's a zine fest in salt lake city every year that's it's really big um but yeah the 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 point is that you're getting information across directly to individuals that it affects Mm. instead of going through channels yeah yeah uh as part of this paper you'd uh, kind of did a survey or looked at what's out there in in the world of prevention right now i wonder if felicia can i uh, turn to you for for this what uh, what are especially on campuses what's what are some of the usual methods yeah so emily and i have been doing this work now for what seems like forever um not quite that long but um as we've been doing this work you know research shows over and over again that the number one ways to go about sexual violence prevention on college campuses really looks at peer education models and bystander intervention. That is like, as a professional in this field, the message you get over and over again as you look at the research. And so we had that, we knew that that's what the research said, but we wanted to look at what are other universities doing? Are they doing more beyond that? Um, and so it was actually Haley Judd, the student you mentioned at the beginning of this, who did the survey. She released a survey to universities throughout the country gathering that information. You know, what are you doing on your campus to prevent sexual misconduct? How are you engaging students? Um, and we saw kind of what we expected, um, similarly to what we're doing on our campus. You know, students really are engaged in this work through the peer education model. So they are, they're helping spread the information, helping spread policy and procedure messages, helping to um, promote those upstander bystander intervention programs. But there is this need, this missing element of students actually creating the sexual misconduct prevention um, efforts on their campuses which is exactly what we wanted to fulfill with this project. Because as a professional doing sexual misconduct at Utah State, we can look and say, this is what we think our students need, right? Maybe that we feel like they need more consent education, or maybe they need a better understanding of what sexual misconduct looks like. But really going to them and asking, what do you feel like you need? is what's going to give us the most, the best results, right? Because A, they're going to, they're going to listen to the messages because it's something that they want to hear. Um, And then they're going to, they're going to take the message personally. They're going to absorb that information because it's applicable. And so through that survey that we did across the country, we realized that 
this is really what we're doing with this project management course really is one of a kind. It's really, it's something that hasn't been done before. It's very new where we're going to students and we're saying, you know, outside of institutional influences, outside of what we as professionals think we should do, what do you want to do? And so that's really how Emily and I approached these students was we can give you an idea of what's going on with our campus based on the campus climate surveys we've released, but we want you all to feel empowered to propose projects that you think this campus needs, and then we're going to support you in implementing those because at the end of the day, you all are experts of your peers. And so this is, again, what comes down to the core of this project being so, um, you know, first of its kind. And that survey that we did across the country just reiterated that and solidified that this is something that really isn't being done um, in the field of sexual violence prevention on college campuses. As we go along, we'll get into some of these ideas that have come out, uh, come actually from students, right, as part of this project. Um, so uh, before we go to a break, I want to turn to uh, Emily Fishburne, again, back up just a little bit. Uh, Felicia talked about, you know, bystander, upstander. And uh, if you're on the USU campus, that's, that's drilled into you, uh, you know, whether you're professor, faculty, you know, staff, student, uh, it's much... Uh, much talked about, much trained. Hopefully it's having good effect. But there may be some people don't know. what What is bystander, upstander? Yeah, so thanks for that, Tom. I appreciate the comments about you feel like it's everywhere. We feel like it's everywhere, too. But, yeah, we recognize that it, it might not be in people's kind of vocabulary associated with Utah State or just in general. So the concept of bystander intervention is basically someone choosing to say something or do something when they see a problematic situation going on. And that problem could be anything. I mean, obviously, in the context of our conversation today, we're talking about applying strategies of intervention to sexual misconduct issues, but it could also be intervening when someone has maybe had too much alcohol to drink or intervening when someone seems to really be struggling with their mental health or their well-being. Uh, so at Utah State, our specific bystander intervention training program is what we call upstanding. Um, and so we encourage and we train members of the university community to be upstanders to be people who say something or do something when they see problematic situations going on. I mean, this is, like Felicia mentioned, one of the cornerstones of the sexual misconduct prevention field in general is really training people how to say something or do something when they see these kinds of behaviors taking place. At Utah State, we train people on what are called the five Ds of being an upstander, what we call direct, delegate, distract, document, and delay. So essentially the goal is to teach people that there's a lot that we can do when problematic situations are going on um, and things that we can do in a safe way. Uh, so part of the, the main principles of being an upstander is making sure that we are still keeping ourselves safe and keeping others safe in the, the context and in the process of, of intervening and saying something when problems do arise. Well, we're uh, overdue a little, little bit for a break. Let's uh, take that uh, now. We're talking uh, with uh, three of the authors of a, uh, of a recent uh, study, a recent paper, uh, based on some experiences in uh, classroom collaboration between students in technical communications and uh, some um, sexual misconduct prevention experts. And so we're talking with Avery Edenfield, USU Assistant Professor of English, Felicia Gallegos, Outreach and Prevention Officer in the USU Savvy Office, and Emily Fishburne, Senior Prevention Specialist in the USU Office of uh, Equity. And uh, before we go out uh, here, just uh, something completely different. I want to um, 
mention a concert coming up. Um, uh, told uh, the director of the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, Craig Jessup, I would uh, mention this again for him. American Festival Chorus and Orchestra is performing a concert of organ and choral and orchestral masterpieces. So that's this Saturday uh, at 7.30 p.m. in the Danes Concert Hall in the USU campus. Uh, Jungen's uh, Concertant for Organ and uh, Requiem by Maurice Durflay. And Dr. Jessup has offered two pairs of tickets, two pairs of tickets to the, this concert. And those are free to you uh, for the first comers who email me to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, just to say you want the tickets. Upraxis at gmail.com for those tickets. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with authors of a recent paper. Uh, it's called "Unlikely Allies in Preventing Sexual Misconduct." So we're talking with Avery Edenfield, USU Assistant Professor of English, Felicia Gallegos, Outreach and Prevention Co- Coordinator at USU's Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Officer Savvy, and Emily Fishburn, Senior Prevention Specialist in the USU Office of Equity. Uh, so, Avery Edenfield, let's uh, let's jump in. What uh, uh, give me the outlines of, of this uh, this project and what these students were assigned uh, to do? Um, yeah. Uh, so the um, as Felicia has said, you know, part of it is student led. Uh, typically, what 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 we do is uh, Felicia and Emily and I meet in the semester before. Um, so it's taught in the spring. We meet in the fall. And uh, what I've appreciated is they, they spend, you know, and they, maybe they could speak more to this, but they spend a lot of time thinking about what projects are appropriate for the time frame that they have um, because it's really important for students to be able to finish on time um, so that they feel that sense of accomplishment and that they that also that Emily and Felicia get projects that they can use and, and the students have artifacts that they can use. So the projects are really particularly um, conceptualized to fit within a pre, like you know, maybe maybe twelve weeks to, to complete, um, and then and then the course is designed around uh, a proposal, um, a, a beta, which or a, a prototype of the of the campaign, and some reflection and some research that they've done, uh, and then the final is designed around whatever specifications that Emily and Felicia have. And that's the basic structure of the class. And in between, they do things where they're learning lessons about project management, and they're applying them to their project in the process. Um, sometimes class is made up of a lab where they're doing the work in class together, and I, I'm directing them and working with them. And Emily and Felicia come to the class and work with them as they're in the process, like it literally working on the projects together inside in, within the class. Um, and then they have interviews that they, re- they conduct, uh, within members of the community uh, to better understand their audiences and the stakeholders involved to the projects. Um, so, but the bones of the class is designed around these three big deliverables, and that just that gives them a structure within the works of these projects. And then the projects are, um, you know, I Emily and Felicia have in the past come up with maybe five ideas, um, and then the students kind of vote on where they want to be and what projects interest them the most. And I really, I think it's really important for them to have a say in what, where, what they work on because you don't always know a student's background. And if working on 
um, you know, if there's some kind of past trauma that they working closely on a particular campaign might be more triggering. So we do let them pick and, and kind of place themselves where they want to be. And then we narrow it down to typically about four projects where Emily and Felicia have uh, two each. And so they're only working with a small group each. Um, and they have a pro- students design a project manager. They write a project charter. They, they create a schedule. Um, they create the typical project management project documents um, around that. And then from there, the final project is is sometime in April. And then we have been uh, adding in an iteration where they're thinking about it for for another audience, so perhaps a statewide campus um, or a different different medium or modality. So if it's a web, a web maybe what would it look like in paper? Or um, if you know, if it's a website, maybe what does this look like a social media or a video or something like that? So they iterate into a different medium. Um, and uh, and that's that's generally the bones of it. The, the projects change from semester to semester. So, um, yeah, very good. Um, so, starting with uh, Felicia Gallegos, and I'll ask each of the the three of you the same question. Uh, so, Felicia Gallegos, is there a particular project that's you know that's memorable to you that, that's come out of the the class that you, that you think has been effective? Oh, goodness. That's a tough question because, honestly, so so many of them have been dream projects. All of them have been dream projects for me um, that I just, again, don't have the capacity to do. But I will touch on one of the one of the most impactful that I can remember was the Start by Believing um, campaign during COVID, the March 2020, when we all went remote. That was the very first year that we did this project. And so not only was that semester class our kind of our guinea pigs for this for this um, collaboration, but then they also got thrown into the pandemic halfway through their semester. So we had a group that semester that was helping to plan our Start by Believing campaign that year. So Start by Believing is a campaign that Utah State participates in every April. It's a international campaign that um, is promoted by Evawi, the In Violence Against Women International. It's a campaign to show survivors that when they come forward, rather than being judged or blamed for what happened to them, they're going to be believed um, and listened to. And it's an opportunity for us as a campus to educate our campus community of how to respond to someone when they disclose an incident of sexual misconduct. So this team this year, this team of students, wanted to take on that Start by Believing campaign that year and had so many great ideas for what we could do on campus, you know, the booths around campus to raise awareness and educate our campus community. And then last minute, they had to take their whole project and turn it into a virtual project. Um, And so in like a matter of two weeks, they created an entire social media campaign um, educating about how to respond to survivors, promoting the Start by Believing pledge. And it actually ended up being, as chaotic as it was for them, it ended up being one of our most successful campaigns, social media campaigns that the Savvy Office has created. Um, And it ended up being a huge part in getting Utah State recognized by the Ivawi in Violence Against Women International. Um, We were recognized just last year in their 10-year celebration of Start by Believing. And so... I would say that's definitely one of the most memorable <laughs> memorable projects, um, but there have been so many 
incredible projects that have come from this collaboration. So same question to you, Emily Fishburn. Uh, pick an uh, impactful project and uh, tell us about it. Uh, so I think similar to Felicia's comments, all of the projects that the students have made over the past couple of years have been fantastic. Um, the one that really stands out to me is we had a student group last spring create a social media education campaign specifically for married students. And so, you know, statistically, a lot of us are aware that a good percentage of our student bodies throughout the state at Utah State is married at some point during their undergraduate or, or graduate careers. Uh, and so these two students, they were paired that particular spring, really wanted to provide some education to their peers who were married, and at least one of them in that working group was married themselves, about consent and healthy relationships and how to talk to a partner about things. And something that those students found in their research is that a lot of times when people get married, they assume that they don't need to keep having conversations about consent or having conversations about healthy relationship dynamics or how to engage in conflict management effectively and those kinds of things. And um, there's just uh, what they found amongst their peers and their research is there's just the assumption that those things are easier once you get married. Uh, but, you know, what the research shows is that they're not necessarily easier. So that particular campaign ran on savvy social media accounts. Felicia was, was great and, and worked with those students to get it up and running. Um, and I think that that one feels particularly meaningful to me in the sense that, you know, we, we have a definition of consent at Utah State that I think many students might perceive as only applying to people who aren't married. And so it was an opportunity for us to reiterate that consent matters when you're married just as much as it matters when you're first dating someone. Uh, and that one has felt pretty um, meaningful and impactful to me as, as an educator. I want to pause the conversation, uh, talk about, I, I had a recent conversation with Representative Angela Romero. She's a couple of past two sessions, uh, has run a bill uh, trying to change the state law uh, to affirmative uh, consent, you know, from no means no to yes means yes. Um, so Emily Fishburne, what, uh, what, you know, what, what do you think the standard should be? Ooh, that's a good question, Tom. So I, I would agree with Representative Romero, and, and Felicia mentioned this earlier, too, that a lot of the research, and, and Avery's mentioned this as well in our conversation, that a lot of the research that is out there is that affirmative consent, so teaching people to not assume that they have consent for certain kinds of sexual activities or, or anything um, is really best practice in terms of, of the way that we should be helping people navigate their sexual and romantic uh, engagements with other people, but also just quite frankly anything. You know, one thing that we do when we talk to students about consent at Utah State is we also help them recognize that it applies to all their engagements with other people, whether it's a roommate, whether it's negotiating what should go on pizza for a night out with friends, right? Consent applies in a lot of, of different spaces because really at the end of the day, what consent is in the way that Utah State defines consent is an agreement to do the same thing at the same time in the same way. Um, so when we think about the concept of affirmative consent, essentially what we're saying is that hey, if you want to do something with other people, you need to make sure that they're okay with it before you actually do that thing. Um, so rather than assuming that it's okay unless someone tells you otherwise, what we really want to flip the narrative to is having people assume that it's not okay unless someone tells you that it is okay. Avery Edenfield, before I have you uh, select a pro memorable project, tell us about it. Uh, um, you said early in the program that uh, some marginalized communities maybe have been uh, I don't know, you know uh, maybe at the forefront on, on defining consent, working on what that means. Tell us about that. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to speak specifically where my research area has been, which is on, um, on within queer communities, 
And I think queer communities, often because either they have been gossip and criminalized communities, um, that they they didn't always have an option to go to the police um, to report a sexual misconduct or sexual violence against them um, because of um, either an expectation or a reality of police mistreatment, um, you know, at the very least. Um, so, you know, if you're, if, if in, it, so I, I believe that there's an ethos around queer consent, um, that has developed over time that is, that is rooted in affirmative consent. Um, and, uh, and as I said, I think that's, that's just a necessity, um, when, when, um, when you can't turn to the police, you can't turn to an institution because of homophobia, um, or um, previous to what was it the 2003 law struck down the criminalization of, of homosexuality across the country, um, they they had to to kind of police their own behaviors in those ways. Um, and I think too, like when you know, like they've like I said, like they've kind of developed this ethos internally about about how to navigate consent. With each other, rather than going, being ha- when you don't have those, those those institutional resources that can help you. Um, so that's really what that kind of peer to peer teaching of consent has what has intrigued me, uh, and bringing this into the project has been useful. Okay, now uh, uh, tell us uh, maybe pick a memorable project to you. Tell us about it from the class. Uh, okay, um, I think. One of the most memorable, I mean, they've all been really fascinating, um, and I, I'm really excited about them. But I think one of the most memorable to me was, so last year um, we toyed or we, we played around and, and it had made it an asynchronous project. It was tough, so they didn't really do teams, they did individual projects. Um, and one student um, identified as neurodiverse, and he did a research paper on teaching consent and working with consent and neurodiverse individuals who, you know, maybe process information um, differently, you know. Um, and that term is kind of tricky because I think every brain is very individual. Um, so, but he, he talked about, he did this research report about consent and I had never seen any of the research. And he talked about some of the things that, that maybe universities can do and, um, USU specifically can do to teach consent to to folks who maybe are on the autism spectrum um, in ways that are meaningful to them. And, and to me, I had never seen that before. I had never seen that came from a student um, to identify the need. And did, he did the research and he came up with some ideas on his own about ways that it can be done at USU. Um, totally unique for, for me, at least. I learned a lot reading his report. So... Um, that was one of the things that stood out to me. And I, I think it exemplifies, like, when students take the lead, exactly what Felicia said, when, when student experiences and expertise is centered in the projects, I mean, it flourishes in a way that maybe it wouldn't. When you're embedded in it all the time, students are able to identify what's missing um, when, when, when we bring them in. So, um, yeah. We're good. Let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, I want to get to uh, takeaways. What have we learned from this whole uh, project, uh, both from the prevention professional side and for faculty? 
Um, we are talking with Avery Edenfield, uh, USU Assistant Professor of English, Felicia Gallegos, Outreach and Prevention Coordinator in the USU Savvy Office, and Emily Fishburn, a Senior Prevention Specialist in USU Office of Equity, talking about a uh, recent report, recent paper titled Unlikely Allies in Preventing Sexual Misconduct. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, talking about a recent uh, report titled Unlikely Allies in Preventing Sexual Misconduct. This is a collaboration between technical communication students and uh, prevention specialists uh, uh, in the field of uh, sexual misconduct. And uh, so we're talking with Avery Edenfield, USU Assistant Professor of English, Felicia Gallegos, Outreach and Prevention Coordinator in the USU Savvy Office, and Emily Fishburne, Senior Prevention Specialist in the USU Office of Equity. So at the end of the, the papers, all good papers do, we have takeaways. Uh, so Emily, or, or let me start with Felicia Gallegos, uh, takeaways for prevention professionals. Uh, what are you suggesting to other folks? Yeah, I would say for prevention professionals, I would say to trust the students on your campuses. Um, there's this hesitation to, you know, get students involved in really creating these projects because, you know, you do want to do the right thing on your campus in preventing sexual misconduct. You want to make sure that your efforts are effective. And that, so there's sometimes some hesitation in in trusting students to know what's best. But we've seen through this project over and over again that their voice is impactful, that they really do know what their campus needs. And if you just trust them, they're going to develop projects that are going to be impactful for your community and that matter. Um, and so that w that's been my biggest takeaway from this project is that I can have faith in the students of our campus to really develop quality projects that impact our entire community. Um, and then we also have a bunch of every, at the end of every course, we have a whole class of ambassadors for this work, right, who are going out into the world, into our campus trying to make it a better place. And so I think to professionals out there, um, just be willing to trust students um, to really take the lead on prevention efforts on your campus. Emily Fishburne, what would you say is what's a takeaway that, uh, that you've that you personally have taken away that you uh, reflect out? My big takeaway from this project is that um, you know really anyone can be part of the the solution to sexual misconduct, and I think intellectually I knew that coming into the project, um, but in terms of practice, typically what we see are people such as myself who have a public health background or Felicia who has a social work background that are often engaged in these dialogues and, and pushing these kinds of conversations forward on a professional level. What I have really loved about this project and I think a key takeaway for other folks who are in the sexual misconduct prevention field is that being willing to include all sorts of different students in the process of, of addressing this issue is truly what's going to, to create an impact at the end of the day. A lot of the students that we interact with in Avery's class are not necessarily students who are choosing to do internships with me or Felicia or necessarily involved in other kinds of, of direct efforts that we have available to students. But like Felicia said, they're making a difference. They're creating projects that we end up being able to use. 
and we're getting such rich perspectives that maybe may not be represented elsewhere. And that's something we really pointed out in the paper that we published as well is the importance of recognizing that a math student has a lot to contribute to the process of addressing sexual misconduct. So does a theater student. You know, so, so do people who maybe would be considered in non-traditional academic disciplines. They all still have a stake in addressing sexual misconduct because it's not like sexual misconduct just impacts one type of person. It impacts all of us. I mean, that's really been my key takeaway is that willingness to engage with students who are maybe outside of the box of the students that we would typically recruit to help us do this kind of work. Avery Edenfield, you have a section here, takeaways for faculty. What would you say? I would say uh, not to be afraid and to reach out uh, to the sexual misconduct prevention for professionals on their campus to partner on projects in their class. Um, and, you know, people who maybe even think that their class maybe isn't a good fit, I think like a poetry class or, you know, a fashion class, or I, I, there are ways that it can fit and fit within prevention, and um, you can do something about it. So I would encourage faculty to reach out and see what kind of collaborations could be developed um, with your prevention professionals on campus. Uh, and I would say, too, that uh, as I mentioned earlier, for me, it's very, it's fulfilling. I mean, I, I'm just so humbled to work with Felicia and Emily. I learn so much from them all the time. Um, but it, it's also helped me to feel like, you know, so much, there's so much in the world that we can't do anything about. But this is something that I feel like every semester I'm able to do something. I'm able to contribute something to, to addressing the problem of sexual violence. And so as a professor, it makes me feel really good to, to do these things. And I, I learned from the students, too, um, as, I, as I mentioned in my example. Uh, so I, I think, you know, for faculty, it's, it's just such a fulfilling uh, project. I look forward to it every year. I'm excited about it. Um, I'm excited to teach the class and to work with them. It's just, it's just a new perspective on teaching that I, I haven't. Um, you know, experience before, and, and and so I would encourage any faculty to reach out and uh, and see what what can happen within your own classes. We just have a couple minutes left uh, in the conversation. I want to at the end of the program. I want to uh, give uh, Felicia Gallegos and Emily Fishburn uh, opportunities to, to give us contact points, and uh, you know, you know, the, um, uh, for your services. So. Um, um, Felicia Gallegos, uh, you know, somebody listening perhaps has, has been a victim of a sexual misconduct or worried about something or wants to report something. What, uh, how do they contact you? What do they do? Yeah, so it's important to note that Savvy is a confidential space. So we are not a reporting entity, meaning that you can come and talk to us about your options completely confidentially um, and receive support from our advocates and therapists. So we are located on the Logan campus physically in the Taggart Student Center, room 311. Um, but we're also available to our statewide campuses virtually. Um, and you can contact us either calling in to 435-797-7273, or you can email us at savvy, that's S-A-A-V-I, at usu.edu. You can also go to our website. It's savvy, again, S-A-A-V-I dot U-S-U dot E-D-U. And on our main page, there's a link that says client paperwork. It's either in English or Spanish. And you can complete that paperwork. You can fill out as little or as much information as you would like. 
and an advocate would be in touch with you within 24 to 48 hours. Very good. Emily Fishburne, the same question to you. Uh, services from Office of Equity, how do people get connected? Sure. So if someone is interested in reporting to Utah State's Office of Equity, there are a number of ways that they can do that. Uh, we encourage people to fill out the online reporting form, which is available on the Office of Equity's website. Um, so our website is equity.usu.edu. There's a big red file report button on the main landing page, uh, and that will route people to their ability to either file a sexual misconduct-related report or a, a discrimination-related report with our office. And we also provide what are called supportive measures to members of the university community. These are accommodations that can be put in place for people who have been impacted by discrimination or sexual misconduct. And people can access those either by filing a report um, or by calling our office, which is 435-797-1266. If individuals are interested in coming and talking to us in person, we are also physically located at the Logan campus in Old Main, room 161. Um, but like Savvy, our services are available throughout the state to any member of the university community. All right. Uh, well, thanks to uh, all of our guests today. Avery Edenfield, USU Assistant Professor of English, thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you. Uh, Felicia Gallegos, Outreach and Prevention Coordinator in the USU Savvy Office. Thanks. Thank you. Happy to be here. Emily Fishburn, uh, Senior Prevention Specialist, USU Office of Equity. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And uh, just a note on tomorrow's program, uh, a few weeks ago, we talked with uh, USU political science professor Anna Pechenkina, uh, who is from Ukraine. Uh, she's Russian-speaking, uh, grew up in eastern Ukraine. Uh, we talked to her about the situation unfolding there. That was before the invasion. We're going to talk to her again uh, tomorrow. Hope you'll join us for that conversation. And today, as always, on a Wednesday, we'll go out with Beehive Archive. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The Central Utah Project, which is still under construction, began with plenty of optimism and ambition, but politics and the inherent difficulty of moving mountains nearly sank the project. Learn how it survived after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. The Central Utah Project, or CUP, is the largest water infrastructure scheme in the history of Utah. Designed to pipe water from the Uinta Basin across the mountains to the Wasatch Front, construction began in the mid-20th century with a flood of federal money. The plans were so ambitious that the project was split into four units. Two additional units were later negotiated as compensation to the Ute tribe for the use of their water. Yet by the 1990s, mounting environmental, budget, and political concerns jeopardized the entire project. Despite claims by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation that it could build a dam anywhere, carving a plumbing system into the mountains was unpredictable. Construction quickly ran over budget and into obstacles. For example, construction on the 8-mile Stillwater Tunnel faced years of delay despite a custom-designed tunnel boring machine. Another tunnel in Diamond Fork Canyon hit a dangerous pocket of sulfur, causing the crew to just abandon equipment worth millions. Meanwhile, the Upper Stillwater Dam leaked and exceeded projected costs by 77 percent. 
1970, the creation of the Federal Environmental Protection Agency introduced more stringent regulations. And the environmental impacts of this vast network of dams, aqueducts, and pumping stations were significant. Environmentalists protested and sued, while sport anglers demanded that streams and fish remain healthy. At the same time, the 1970s was a decade of inflation and federal deficits, so extravagant reclamation projects drew attention from national politicians. In 1977, President Jimmy Carter placed the CUP on his hit list. As the purse strings tightened, planners pushed the units promised to the Ute tribe to the back burner. By the 1990s, to survive, the CUP needed to satisfy deficit hawks in Washington, environmentalists, and the Ute tribe. The Central Utah Project Completion Act of 1992 nearly managed this feat. The federal government handed responsibility for the project's completion over to a state-based agency, but retained control over the budget. The project would restore the Provo River, pleasing anglers and environmentalists, but the CUP never made good on its promises to the Ute tribe. A frustrated Ute business committee withdrew tribal support from the project in 1999 and continues to seek recompense for the units never built. The compromises meant that the CUP survived, although in a reduced form. And while its completion is scheduled for 2026, time will tell whether the CUP will meet its final deadline. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Thanks again for listening for, to Access Ute. Here at the, the end, we just want to give uh, a little more information and uh, maybe give away these tickets to this concert coming up uh, this weekend. So it's the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra, and uh, they're performing uh, Saturday at 7.30 p.m. in the Danes Concert Hall on the USU campus. Uh, Dr. Craig Jessup will lead uh, the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra in a performance of uh, the Symphony Concertant for Organ by Joseph Jungen and Requiem by Maurice Durufle. Guest organist is Bradley Hunter Welch. Soloists, uh, vocal soloists, are Aubrey Adams McMillan and Eric Hood. Uh, and that is this Saturday evening at 7.30. Dr. Jessup has provided two pair of tickets. So the first uh, two folks who let me know they want those tickets, get those. Those are free. A couple of emails is how you can get to me uh, for those tickets. Uh, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. That's upraccess at gmail.com. Or you can email me to uh, my university account, tom.williams at usu.edu, tom.williams at usu.edu for those uh, one of those uh, two free pairs of tickets to the concert for American Festival Chorus and Orchestra this Saturday, 730. And uh, thanks again for listening to Access Utah.